How's it going? Welcome. Welcome one and all to the most wonderful time of the year, the EFL playoffs. Today is the NTT20 Championship Playoff Preview for the 2021 season. And I'm Ali Maxwell. And with me is George Ellick. Hello. And it's been a grind. But finally, <laughs> we get to the good stuff. I think that's the best thing about this is that um, it is a grind, but you're rewarded at the end. Like if it was, I feel like the Premier League at the moment is just, there's, it's, it's just happening the whole time and nothing's happening. And it is just like game after game when nothing really matters. Whereas we have come through the whole 46 game season and now we have, what is it? Like 15 games left and they are 15 of the greatest possible games you can have. So I am, to quote a man we're probably going to talk about quite a lot on this podcast, I am buzzing. Given that we both think that the EFL playoffs are the greatest invention in the world of sport, I think you can understand how excited we are to record this playoff preview. We're also very excited, George, because for our three individual division playoff preview podcasts and our preview podcast ahead of the three finals, we're sponsored by Betfair. George, a new partnership for us and one that we are very chuffed and excited about. Yes, incredibly exciting. And thank you to the people at Betfair for sponsoring us. They're sponsoring our four playoff preview podcasts in the context of this podcast and the other pods we're going to be talking about. It is a betting podcast as such. We're going to give our tips as well as previewing the the games from a more general perspective as well. Um, but we'll be using both the uh, Betfair Sportsbook, which offers things like Bet Builders, which we're going to be doing, where you can kind of pick and choose your bets for certain games, and the Exchange as well. And the Exchange, I would say, is an absolute must for any better in any sport because the Exchange not only gives you what will often give you prices that are better than what sports books are offering you. You can also lay. You can also lay your position, so you can get out if you're if if you want to get out of your position. You know the kind of the cash out angle, but it's actually more manual. There are so many benefits to the Betfair exchange um, that I just yeah really re- would recommend it. But definitely do get onto Betfair. Um, it is pretty much a one stop shop for all of your needs uh, when it comes to betting on football. And of course, in a normal week, as you've mentioned, we have the Monday podcast and we have the betting show. Uh, These playoff previews are a rare merger of the two. So we're going to go for the usual general analysis with some betting selections as well. Because of that, this podcast is for over 18s only. We're talking about betting at times during this pod. Betting comes with risks. So please make sure you head to Be Gamble Aware to learn all of the risks that come with gambling. Uh, Betfair have a really good offer uh, if you're a fan of multiples, especially at the moment. Uh, if you bet £20 worth of multiples, you'll get a £5 free bet. Now, multiples here includes doubles and above and bet builders as well. Terms and conditions do apply. You can find those on the Betfair website. But here we go. It's time to get our teeth into the championship playoffs. They are between Brentford and Bournemouth in one semi-final and Barnsley and Swansea in the other. Before we get into the first tie with a few little stats that may be of interest George to yourself and to some of the listeners there's always always so much talk heading into the playoffs isn't there about form about momentum about mentality (laughs) about all of these things that are quite hard to measure at times and it's hard to know how they all contribute to a playoff performance now I have to thank friend of the pod Ollie Brady here who went back through 15 years worth of championship playoffs for us Uh, and these stats are just for the championship but the first thing to say is the teams finishing in third place are significantly more successful or have been significantly more successful than the other teams, winning almost 50% of all championship playoffs over the last 15 years and getting to the final 80% of the time. In terms of that word momentum, which I generally think people take to mean form, now last six games is the general indicator of form, isn't it? And this is not very predictive in terms of success in the playoffs. Over the last 15 years, Actually, the team with the second best last six game form has prevailed more often than the team with the best last six games form. Maybe a better indicator and a little clearer is over the last 10 games of the regular season. The best team over the last 10 games has reached the final 11 of 15 championship seasons and won five of them. And the second best team over the last 10 games has reached the final nine of 15 times winning five Now, the relevance for this group of sides is this, if you like those stats. Listen to this. The last 10 games, Bournemouth and Brentford, the second and third best record in the championship behind Watford, of course, 
Barnsley were 8th and Swansea 17th. Now, I wonder if that'll have any impact on Betfair's prices, their odds for the championship playoffs, George. What do the outright markets tell you about who the bookies make favourites and outsiders for this playoffs? So the sportsbook have Brentford as the 17 to 10 favourite. That's with the Betfair sportsbook. Bournemouth 9 to 4, Barnsley 7 to 2, Swansea 4 to 1. But if you look over at the exchange, it's all a little bit different. Brentford currently 2.64, so a little bit shorter than that 17 to 10, which would be 2.7. Bournemouth 4.2, so much bigger than that 9 to 4 on offer. That's bigger than 3 to 1. Barnsley 4.4, so a little bit shorter than the 7 to 2, and Swansea 5.7, so quite a lot bigger than the 4 to 1. It's a perfect example here of why the sportsbook and the exchanges are interesting because if you're going to be using, so if you're going to be backing Brentford or Barnsley, you want to be doing it on the sportsbook. If you want to be backing Bournemouth or Swansea, you want to be doing it on the exchange. And the interesting thing I would say here is that because the exchange is the prices are based on basically people's money. It's it's where the money is queuing either side to back and to lay. It's probably more indicative of um, of where the market is and where the market's going. So the fact that Bournemouth opened up nine to four with Sportsbook and are now available at four point two, so bigger than three to one, and the same for Swansea would suggest that they are pretty friendless in the market. People very very keen to lay them, and Brentford and Barnsley proving to be the popular two. So that is what we're looking at at the moment. I would say, but interesting, I would say that Brentford and Bournemouth are the two favourites of the four, despite them playing against each other. Mm. We'll start with Brentford against Bournemouth. This is the first playoff game that we'll see on Monday, the 17th of May at 6pm. This one will kick off the second leg the following Saturday, the 22nd at 12.30. Now, I'll just give a bit of info on how they got here. 10 points between these two sides over the 46 regular season league games. Brentford in third, Bournemouth in sixth. Brentford got three more points than the Cherries at home and seven more points away from home to give you an idea of the strength of those two teams home and away. Whatever that means this season in terms of home and away advantage with no fans. Of course, there will be fans at these games, not packed houses by any means, but it'd be fascinating to see how that impacts things. Brentford finished the season in good form, unbeaten in 12. Now, six of those first eight were draws, actually, which probably wasn't very helpful for any automatic promotion tilt, but they finished with four wins. And Bournemouth themselves finished the season by winning seven games in a row, scoring three goals a game in the process, up until the point where they lost to Brentford 1-0 and then lost their last two. So they won seven in a row and then they lost three in a row. And interestingly, Ollie Brady let me know that no playoff team has ever picked up zero points from their last three games. So a bit of an unknown there. Uh, George, Jonathan Woodgate's in the Bournemouth dugout. Now, he was appointed as a first team coach to replace Graham Jones, who left for Newcastle in early February. And within a day or two, Jason Tindall had been sacked with the team in sixth. Woodgate was given the job uh, you know, as a caretaker, very much so. And there were there was a lot of reporting surrounding who they were going after, most notably Thierry Henry. But it didn't take too long for Woodgate to be given the job full-time. And since then, he's won 11 of 19 in the league, including that seven in a row, taking 35 points in total, the seventh best re- record in the league in that time. So they were sixth when he arrived. They finished sixth. And it's an interesting case, isn't it, this, just in general, because managers are, are always so important in a playoff run. The phrase, fallen on his feet, has been used to describe Jonathan Woodgate and Bournemouth. Why would that be? Isn't that a phrase that I used myself on a different podcast talking about him? Correct. That is the correct <laughs> um, answer. It's, it's an interesting one with Woodgate. If you look at the other manager's in the playoffs this season, right? You've got Thomas Frank, who has led his team in consecutive seasons to the playoffs, last season to the playoff final. Even though I'm aware there are some Brentford fans who probably think there are some deficiencies to his um, management style at times, he's proven himself to be a coach who is adept at both creating a side who score a lot of goals when they're at it and who um, are very, very solid defensively. There is no doubting his his pedigree or his calibre as a manager, I don't think. Steve Cooper, uh, again, some Swansea fans, especially in the last couple of months, aren't too happy with him. But again, he took over a side who are outside the playoffs and has led them to consecutive playoff campaigns. It's hard to really pick too many holes in him um, in terms of, of where he's taken his club. Valerian Ishmael comes into a side who was saved from relegation on final day at Barnsley comes in after a pretty terrible start under Gerhard Struber early in the season and leads them on this 
absolutely absurd run of uh, of 75 points from 40 games fourth most points in the division in that time and it wasn't even necessarily a particularly quick start it's just he's turned them into a an incredibly interesting winning um team that we're going to talk about a bit later on but in my opinion he is the championship manager of the season bar none so you've got three guys here who even though they will have some who who pick holes in what they've done you can be pretty assured of their position in these ranks with Woodgate that isn't the case now that's not to say that he isn't capable of doing this I would have said exactly the same thing going into the playoffs last season and specifically the playoff final I probably did say it you know when you're looking at Scott Parker versus Thomas Frank there was one who'd proven himself as a tactician to me and there was one who looked to be where he was basically based on reputation now what happened I mean Parker completely outfoxed Frank in the final so I'm not here to say that Woodgate won't necessarily do that but in my opinion looking at this as a preview I I feel like Brentford are basically already 1-0 up in terms of of, of who they've got in the dugout Woodgate is a manager who came in at Middlesbrough um, after they just narrowly missed out of the playoffs under Tony Pulis he was his assistant manager then and he oversaw a decline at the club which saw him sacked when they were pretty close to the relegation zone. Neil Warnock comes in, immediately improves them, and they finish, you know, 10th or 11th in the championship again. So it's hard to really get away from the fact that if you're looking at trends under certain managers, it was a negative one. And it, after the Borough job, I would have been pretty surprised to see a championship side take a chance on Woodgate. Now, as you say, he's fallen on his feet. He, he, whether or not it was always the plan, he was brought in as a coach, was then a caretaker, and then was manager of a side who, frankly, have a ridiculous array of talent for a championship team, whether it is Arno Danjuma or Junior Sanislas or David Brooks or Jack Wilshire or Dominic Solanke. You know, these are Philip Billing. These are guys who 18 months ago, 12 months ago, did not anticipate that they'd be playing second-tier football. So he's blessed for that reason. He obviously has done some very good things. I'm not here to say he hasn't. Um, the especially the the tune that he's managed to get out of Philip Billing and turning him into kind of a, a midfield goal-scoring destroyer. Dan Juma's consistency, which is something we didn't necessarily see under Tyndall. You know, there are positives here, but going into this game, I still feel like he is the only manager of the four that still has to prove that he is rightfully the manager of a team in the top six of the championship. He's getting credit understandably given the improved results although as I mentioned you know seventh best record in the time that he's been in charge from sixth to sixth it's 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 nothing major put it that way but they did look a lot better one of the things that he gets credit for is simplifying things he made a tactical tweak that works Jason Tindall's side at the start of the season were often playing in a, a three at the back formation and it felt watching them like they were over complicating things it felt like they were trying to be something trying to to get to a point where they could be something and not getting very close to being that the, the build-up play from the back was tough to watch they weren't getting the best out of those talented players and Woodgate in switching to a, a 4-2-3-1 with Billing uh, sort of in a number 10 role a very advanced goal scoring midfield role which he's never really played before um that worked taking a player out of the back line and moving one into the final third of the pitch it didn't impact them defensively in a negative way they were pretty much the same defensively and they got a lot better in an attacking sense as you might expect so the other thing is as you say he's got he has got the best out of a group of talented players big names for the level in a way that Jason Tindall didn't and I guess heading into the playoffs and it's hard to answer this is do they need to be more than that do, you know, if he has simplified things and is giving these guys, you know, free reign to express themselves, is that enough? Are the players good enough um, to impose themselves on this three-game run to the Premier League if they reach the final? Or do you need more in a playoff setting? Do you need maybe the tactical nous, or do you need a track record of making tweaks in game to improve things when they're not going your way? That is what I think is fascinating about this. And you've talked about Thomas Frank. He's a sixth longest. Mer- 
<laughs> the sixth longest serving manager in the championship, just over two and a half years, lost in the playoff final to Fulham last season after finishing third. This year, they were in and around the automatics for a long period. They even hit the top of the championship on the 10th of February, which is only three months ago, but then only got 13 points from the next 11 and lost ground to Watford and Norwich ultimately. The big thing for Brentford to be aware of is a change of formation. Uh, and where Woodgate went from three at the back to a 4-3-3, well, Brentford had done the complete opposite. They've been playing 4-3-3 for the first, what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the season. And there was a switch which really coincided with a strong finish to the season. And that makes it really interesting to me. It's a 3-5-2, which is actually quite unusual in terms of personnel and roles. You've got like Sergi Kanos playing left wing back. They brought in a youngster, Ruslev, who has dislodged Dalsgaard as the right back. He's playing right wing back. But Christian Norgaard has always played in a defensive midfield role into the heart of the back line. Tarek Fossu often playing a kind of free role behind two strikers, normally Tony uh, and one of Force and Burmo. It's really worked. The first game they played it, they blitzed Preston 5-0 and they finished strong from there with, with five wins and two draws in their last seven. So all bodes pretty well for Brentford on that front. It certainly looks from where I'm sitting like this change in formation has, has helped them get to another level um, and could be, you know, a big, if, if they might not have the talent advantage in this semi-final, that could be something of a leveller uh, in that front. I'm going to ask you for a, a little overview of the betting in terms of the first leg and in terms of in general what the what Betfair is saying about this tie. But quickly, I just want to mention that in the regular season, they played twice. Brentford won both games. In December, they won 2-1. And now this is a funny one to look back on because Brentford were playing 4-3-3 and Bournemouth were playing 3-5-2 and they've basically flipped those systems entirely now. Bournemouth had three massive chances in the first half an hour, including taking the lead through Solanke. But then a Dalsgaard flick from a Jensen corner uh, and a Fossu header from a, a lovely assist from Mbermo got Brentford the win. And in April, not long ago, just three games ago, Brentford in their 3-5-2 at this point and Bournemouth in their 4-2-3-1. The, the, the general guises that we expect for this game. Brentford won 1-0 and the scoreline didn't tell the whole story. Early on in the game, Stanislas had a huge chance and then Ivan Tony had a huge chance and then Janssen for Brentford was sent off at 0-0. You'd have expected Bournemouth to come on strong after that with about half an hour to go. But they showed absolutely nothing. They only had four shots total in that game. And in fact, it was Brentford who got the winner, Brian and Burmo with it. So, George, I guess that was one of the most impressive team performances that I'd seen this season. And then on the flip side, one of the most disappointing, if you're looking from a Bournemouth perspective, as I mentioned, they barely even troubled the goal after that early chance. How much are those league games shaping your opinion on this semi-final? <laughs> I'll start with the odds and then I'll get into that because the answer is a lot. Um, yeah, the, the match odds for that first leg, it's at the Vitality, so at Bournemouth. And Sportsbook have Bournemouth 17 to 10, the draw 11 to 5, Brentford 13 to 8. So Brentford just about favourites, pretty marginal. To qualify, unsurprisingly, Brentford's solid favourites at one one to two. Bournemouth are six to four. If you're looking at goal scorers, Ivan Tony, the seven to two favourite to score first. Uh, Solanke, eleven to two. Dan Juma and Shane Long, both six to one. The same price as no goal scorer as well. And the goal line over two and a half is uh, eleven to ten. Unders thirteen to twenty. So the goal line suggests a cagey game and I think it's right at the top of the show that we should kind of say that often these games are very cagey you know even though we love the playoffs because what it symbolizes and we all remember those crazy moments whether it's Watford um, against Leicester and that ridiculous Deeney goal or, or Swindon Sheffield Wednesday we remember those times, but we should point out that because the stakes are so high, these games can often descend into fairly turgid affairs, I think it's fair to say, where keeping the ball out of your net is sometimes more important than not. And I'm not saying that's going to happen in every occasion, but I think there's every chance to think that at least for the first part of this game, it might not be a great spectacle. Now, that would go against certainly the first game between these two sides, which was an excellent advert for championship football. It was really end-to-end, -end, two attacking sides going for it. The second game, as you mentioned, there were two early chances. That Stanislas chance that you mentioned a second ago was Bournemouth's only shot in the first half. They had three more shots in the second half, despite Brentford being down to 10 men, all of which were outside the box. Brentford had 18 shots in the game and were really good value for their win. Now, this 
wasn't a massive game at the time. It was a bit of a shootout to see who'd finished third, which just shows how poor um, Bournemouth have been towards the end of the season, given that they finished seventh. Now, Billing started, Dan Juma started, Stanislas started, um, and Solanke started. This wasn't by any stretch a, a weakened side for, um, for for the Cherries and for Woodgate, but they basically just couldn't really find a way through. They were second best throughout. And I think that's going to play massively into Woodgate's mind here because even though they're at home and they've got home advantage and they want to use that and they're going to be fans there, which is great, he will know that these two sides came up against each other three weeks ago and they were, to all intents and purposes, battered 1-0, you know, and against 10 men for the second half. It is incredibly important that they find a way to, to stay in this game. Now, the, the flip side to that is that I think Brentford, if you offered said to Thomas Frank now, don't bother making the journey down to the south coast. Let's just shake hands on uh, on nil-nil now and, and return to Brentford. He'd be very happy with that. I think he would certainly back his side at home to get the result they needed to go through. So even though the headlines here are going to be around um, some star players, you know, we haven't even mentioned Ivan Tony yet with his 31 goals. I'm still anticipating this is going to be a slow one to start with both teams very much placing the onus on not conceding early. And you look at Brentford's defensive record uh, recently, you know, they are a side who haven't conceded many goals at all recently. They've conceded just two goals in their last eight games. So they're going to be set up to do what they normally do on a basically a firm defensive platform, able to to know that they're not going to concede hatfuls of goals. Any goals that they get are going to be a positive. So thinking th- through that, I mean, it's it's not necessarily a case of just opposing Bournemouth in my book, although I probably will look to do that in some way. I think backing nil-nil at halftime at seven to four is a very smart way to go. I, I can easily see this being a game which, where basically both teams cancel each other out and the occasion maybe prevents the kind of end-to-end stuff that we saw in that first fixture. I don't really see much reason why Bournemouth will turn around the form and suddenly create a hat for the chances against a side they couldn't do so recently. And I'm also going to tip up no goal scorer. Now, at the moment, no goal scorer is 6-1 to one with Sportsbook. I would just wait a bit and see what it is on the day on the exchange because often goal scorer markets can be a bit bigger. Um, again, I, I think nil-nil wouldn't be a disaster for either side and um, I can see it being a pretty scrappy affair of few chances. Um, if I had to side with one team, it would probably be Brentford and we'll get on to that in a second. But my first line of thought is yeah, to basically oppose goals. Yeah, interesting to 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 hear that. I mean, you're absolutely right about playoff semi-finals, and I can certainly see this one being gagey as well. There's no doubt about that. And yet, you look at the players involved, and it's uh, you know, it's hard to see sometimes when you look at the individual players how they couldn't or wouldn't impact this game. Um, just to run through, I mean, Solanke against Tony as the two number nines is box office. Of course. Tony has scored basically twice as many goals as Solanke this season. But in flashes, Solanke, now that he's back and fit uh, and developed those relationships, particularly with Billing, Brooks and Dan Juma, he's been a brilliant all-round player. And I think there'll be people who watch this game who maybe haven't watched a ton of Bournemouth live this season, maybe legacy Premier League fans as as we know them, who might be surprised and pleasantly surprised by the quality of Solanke and the performance he puts in. Tony is relentless in all facets, could not have been a better player for Brentford this season is not everything to them. But when you consider who they lost in the summer, the types of player that they lost, particularly Ben Rama and and Watkins up top as well, the pure personality on the pitch of Tony has been a huge thing for Brentford. And of course, the goal return and the assist return where he got over double figures for assists as well uh, is hugely eye-catching. So he's obviously the star man. I would flag up something to watch here in terms of Tony. Of the starting Bournemouth centre-backs, Cook and Carter Vickers, Carter Vickers has got quite a low aerial win percentage. So look for Tony to try and pin him. Make sure he's competing with Carter Vickers for duels when there's crosses coming in from the box and when there's long balls being played forward towards Tony. He'll do his best to pin himself to Vickers, Carter Vickers, I should say, rather than Cook. Now at the back, I want to flag up what I call big game Pontus for Brentford. (laughs) And I'm afraid big game Pontus is not a positive nickname. Because ever since he was at Leeds, 
there's been more than a suspicion, evidence that in the very biggest affairs, whether it's something to do with his personality or with his style of play, Pontus Janssen has a big old rick in him and they seem to be timed very poorly. My mind is cast back to last season's semi-final against Swansea, where he made things unnecessarily nervy. He was actually sent off in this game just a few weeks ago against Bournemouth. And it's a, such a funny one, because I don't really want to be flippant. Pontus Janssen is a very, very good defender, has been a brilliant signing for Brentford, was a, was a signifier of their moving up the championship food chain because they bought him off Leeds United and previously that was not something that Brentford would have done uh, in the transfer market. He's been a magnificent player for them and he's a key, key player. But he's also got a big rick in him and I'm worried about that from a Brentford perspective. You mentioned Dan Juma for Bournemouth, you know, pretty much my favourite player in the league over the last few months. First in the league, in fact, for non-penalty goals and assists per 90 uh, in the championship this season. And if you fancy Bournemouth to be strong on Monday, if you fancy them a little stronger than, than maybe George or I do, Dan Juma at 11-4 to to score any time, I think slightly appeals to me, I must admit. And Billing, you mentioned, who'd, who'd never been a goal-scoring midfielder until Johnny Woodgate got his mitts on him and, and then scored seven in, in the space of 15 games. For Brentford, of course, they've got other goal threats and, and maybe... The interesting, the most interesting part of this formation switch for me has been we get to see a little bit more of Marcus Force, uh, who is such a highly rated young Finnish striker, still so young. We saw him score goals for Wimbledon in League One last season. Uh, Brentford gave him a five or six year contract. There's been reports that Dortmund are watching him. All the top clubs love what he can bring in inside the penalty box as a poacher. But there was never an obvious space for him in the 4-3-3. And there certainly is now um, that they're playing 3-5-2. And I wouldn't say him and Tony have been the slickest front two that I've seen in recent games. And there's an argument that Mbermo, when he's played uh, alongside Tony up front, has actually probably responded better than Force, but both of them have a proper eye for goal uh, and, you know, outside of Tony are Brentford's major goal threats. And one other thing I wanted to flag up just tactically, I am no tactical expert, but in a 4-3-3 against a 3-5-2, I always think the wide areas are going to be really important. Brentford are a team that like to build up in wide areas and have done for the last few years. It's something they're very, very good at. And actually Bournemouth themselves especially with Lerma and Pearson in their double pivot, they don't have a ton of really creative passes in midfield. So I think they'll look to play down the sides as well. And I think a lot of this game will be spent with both sides trying to build up play down the sides, trying to build overloads there. And so key for me has to be the youngster Ruslev, Brentford's right wing back, up against Arno Danjuma. And on the other side, Sergi Canos, who sort of used to be a young, tricky winger and seems to be moving further and further back the older that he gets. He'll be up against David Brooks, you'd think, if not Stanislas. And those are going to be key moments. Whenever Dan Juma and Brooks have the ball at their feet, running inside at these at these you know inexperienced defenders, you have to say, those are going to be moments where Brentford fans will be holding their breath. They've got strength in numbers inside the pitch, obviously, with three centre-backs and at least two, maybe three central midfield players. So they'll be trying to funnel them inside and trying to make sure they don't get a decent look at goal because just ask Norwich what Dan Juma can do when you give him a look from uh, from 20, 25 yards. But of course, in terms of bombing on, that's going to be interesting for Brentford's fullbacks, uh, wingbacks rather. How high up the field will they dare to go knowing that if there's a quick transition, they could be absolutely killed down the sides? Uh, there's a few things to look out for, but it's time to essentially put our money where our mouths are. George Ellick, um, <laughs> for this tie and this first leg. Just talk me through what you're backing here. Well, yeah, I mean, I mentioned the the unders tips. Well, the the nil-nil, uh, half-time, seven or four, and then going to wait and see what price no goal scorer is. Uh, a reminder for anybody who, who, who hasn't listened to the pod a lot that if you bat no goal scorer rather than nil-nil and there's an own goal and it finishes one-nil or two-nil and there are two own goals, your your bet is still a winner. Hence the no goal scorer rather than the uh, the nil nil or under 0.5 goals. So we're going to see what price that is. I also think it, we have to get, or I think I have to get with um, Brentford in some way. Now I, I'm not like overly bullish on this. I think that the two one to qualify is too short to be backing. But because Bournemouth's form coming into this game is is pretty poor. You know, they've in their last three games, they've lost all three. They haven't scored a goal. The last two were against Wickham and, and Stoke, two teams who you probably wouldn't anticipate them to struggle to score against, let alone lose. Um, I know that 
many Bournemouth fans and probably many neutrals will say, well, the games didn't matter. But there's a nagging doubt in my head when you combine the fact that they've had three abject performances in a row, coupled with the fact that I don't really rate their manager. The fact that they're playing at home in the first leg gives us an opportunity, I think, to, to snaffle a bit of value on Brentford. Now, Brentford's away record has been pretty good. That They lost three games in a row away from home um, about about two months ago against QPR, Coventry and uh, Norwich. But except for that little blip, they've been good away from home. And recently we've seen them put in really, really good performances on the road, um, including a 5-0 win away at Preston recently. And then, of course, that game we spoke about at the Vitality where they won 1-0. Um, so I'm not really concerned about that. I'm not going to back them just to win the game because, as I mentioned, I think a draw is a big runner and I think that Brentford would take a draw. So I'm going to back them draw no bet at 4-5. to five. And then the Betfair Sportsbook also have a bet builder tool where you can, you know, if, if like me, you've got a couple of, of angles you want to exploit. So I'm going obviously for a KG under goals and I'm also going for Brentford to emerge victorious. You can combine them all into one bet. And my bet builder is a treble. It is Brentford and draw. So double choice. So double chance there under two and a half goals in the whole game and under 0.5 goals in the first half. So nil nil first half. And that is 3.9 so just under three to one Ali I don't know if we're going to be able to maybe maybe we after the pod's been out for a while we can tweet our bet builders or something so people can see them but that is the one I'm going for so to repeat that is Brentford and draw double chance under two and a half and um under 0.5 first half goals um are the ways that I'm looking at it and I'm also a singles backing four to five Brentford draw no bet and the main one is that nil nil at half time seven to four I think you've explained it very well, mate. I'm not sure we need to tweet them out. We've got smart listeners. And I think Thank they you. can work that one out for themselves. Um, look, I sadly am not going too far against you. Uh, I kind of hope that at some point over these three previews, we will massively disagree. But perhaps it's not that surprising um, that we're not a million miles away here. I'm going to pick Brentford to progress aside from any betting pick. You know, they are my pick to reach the final. I'm also not interested in, in that to qualify price that you mentioned at two to one on. I'm going to bet in the first leg for Brentford to win either half at five to six. Now, this is because I think that the two regular season games can be fairly prescriptive and it kind of comes back to even though I know it's a small sample size of just two games, what we said about the two managers. In both games, Bournemouth started well. They came out with confidence. They played some good football and they were the better side in both games for, let's say, 25 minutes, maybe half an hour. In both games, that changed pretty significantly. Brentford were the team that grew into the game. Necessary tweaks were made to personnel or to tactics, whatever it might have been. They grew into the game and by the end of both games, you would watch and think that Brentford are the better side. So I'm going to back them to win either half at five to six with the expectation that if they are to win one of those, it'll be the second half. But also knowing that, you know, if Brentford really do turn up and if their game plan is better than, than Bournemouth and if Thomas Frank out tactics Jonathan Woodgate, it could easily be the first half as well. Uh, and my second bet at a longer price uh, is the draw at half time. We'll call it nil-nil, which is what you want. And, Bre <laughs> and Brentford full-time. So draw slash Brentford uh, at 11-2. to two. Uh, Again, my theory that Bournemouth might well start strong, but that Brentford would be the team to finish strong uh, in this tie. And just on Brentford, the last thing, it would be wrong to talk about Brentford in the playoffs without mentioning that they have, I think, the worst record of any team in EFL playoffs history. This will be their 10th appearance in the playoffs and they've never won them. They've never won promotion through the playoffs. And it becomes a big part of the narrative about Brentford, especially from outsiders, but frankly, from within their own fan base as well. These things do become big narratives within fan bases. The, 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 the theory that Brentford have fallen short before, not just in the playoffs, but perhaps if you looked at the last two seasons, you might say, well, they didn't quite get over the line in the automatic battle uh, in the 1920 season. They didn't quite get over the line this season when they were in with a good chance. And that's all true. And I really struggle to measure how much of an impact that has on a team heading into the playoffs. I find it hard personally to imagine that this Brentford side will be trotting out on Monday night with the weight of history weighing heavy on them. You know, teams that had nothing to do with these players, guys that they didn't know with very little in common apart from the badge that they wore. And also I would just flag up, 
people haven't talked about Bournemouth's mentality because we don't know anything about it. There's no, there's none of this historical evidence with Bournemouth. What do we know about this Bournemouth team's character in big moments? We don't know much, but almost all of the key players that are still playing now were involved in a relegation last season. A relegation that wasn't by any means nailed on. They'd been in the Premier League for a few years. The expectation, if anything, was that they would keep developing rather than botch it and get relegated. Almost all of the key players this season were involved in a season that ultimately is an underachievement for, for this Bournemouth side and for the squad that they had. Certainly for the first two thirds of the season. All of these players were involved with that. Yes, they had a seven-game blitz where they won seven in a row, and that was impressive. Um, and then they eased off. So I don't know what that tells us about Bournemouth's mentality. That's a bit of a wild card for me. Brentford's history in the playoffs and last season's, semi, uh, last season's final defeat definitely hangs over them. But can we say definitively that in Bournemouth's club DNA or this squad's DNA or the manager's DNA that they're proven in big moments as well? I don't think so. So those factors do not particularly weigh on... on my feelings when it comes to this the one interesting thing to pick up off on that and it's annoying because i don't have the exact figures to hand is that teams who lose in the playoff final if returning to the playoff final have like a remarkably good record i think it's only something like two of them have ever been beaten so whilst that doesn't necessarily affect what we're talking about here if we when we get on next week or in 10 days to our playoff final preview podcast if brentford are in it um, I promise that by then I'll make sure I've got the figures to hand. The Ex Exeter fans wincing at you there because they're, mm. they're very much the exception, aren't they? OK, yeah. the second semi-final, uh, which is part of the NTT20 Championship Playoff Preview sponsored by Betfair, is Barnsley against Swansea. I'm going to do a little bit of setting of the scene. Of course, this is fourth versus fifth. Swansea finished fourth with 80 points and Barnsley two points less than that on 78 and that does not tell the whole story and frankly you could argue that the regular season results between the two teams don't tell the whole story either but they are quite a helpful way of explaining things to you these two sides Barnsley and Swansea played each other twice in the space of one month in December and January Swansea won both games by two goals to nil the first game was at Swans on a horrendous pitch before it got relayed there was a low goal and an own goal and Swansea won two nil and then at Oakwell, Ben Cabango flicked in a Connor Roberts long throw and a Barnsley mix-up at the back, let Jamal, run, uh, Jamal Lowe run through and finish well. So two 2-0 two wins for Swans in the space of a month. At the point of that second game, Swansea was second in the table in the automatic promotion places. Barnsley were 10th. There were 12 points between them. The fact that they finished with just two points between them and one place, I think, speaks to their differing fortunes after that. Um you know, combined Swansea first half of the season, 43 points in 23, with a Barnsley second half of the season, 44 points in 23, and you really would have a good side at championship level. But that speaks to um, the sort of ebbs and flows of their season. Over both games, I should mention, they were not a classic. Swansea had 12 shots, only four on target across two games. Barnsley, 18 shots, again, only four on target. So it's a funny one, George. Part of me thinks please don't expect fireworks in this game. And then part of me is like, well, I'm loath to read too much into those games given how different both of these these two teams look. Swansea, you have to say a shell of that side and Barnsley much more confident and, well, more of a winning machine now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you set me up just to go straight into my, my, biggest, my biggest fantasy of the whole playoffs, really, because I think Barnsley, to qualify at five to six with the sports book is very, very good value. I think they come into this game as comfortably the better side of the two. You look at both teams separately. You know, I've mentioned Ishmael in the first part as being this manager who came in the style of football for those people listening who maybe, you know, it, it's not a massive surprise that quite a lot of people who love their football only really get involved in the EFL when it's playoff time because it is more dramatic and there's a hell of a lot at stake and they kind of probably want to see the teams that are going to be playing in the Premier League next season. Barnsley's style and the way that they try and win games is it may not be for everybody, but I absolutely love it. You know, it's the they press incredibly hard and incredibly high. Um, but unlike other teams that we associate with a high pressing nature, who maybe when they have the ball look to keep it, they are 
incredibly direct. Um, that's not necessarily talking about long ball. It is just an intention to get the ball forward at any op- opportunity and at any cost. And as such, they are very, very awkward to play against because you can't really get out and then they don't really give you any respite when you, um, you, know, you can't really employ a low block against them because they will just come at you time and time again. They have no interest in just ball retention. And it works. Jed you know, Wallace, 75- didn't he, told us on this podcast, Millwall's Jed Wallace, that he'd never played a team who plays like that at any level of his footballing mm. career. And, and it rattles the opposition. We've seen it loads of times. We saw Neil Warnock absolutely hate it, of all people, afterwards. And just to add to their many strengths, they are brilliant at set pieces. You know, They've scored 17 set piece goals this season. Only Cardiff have scored more. Michael Hellick and Mads Anderson proving to be very difficult. And with the expert delivery of Alex Mowat, they are able to hurt you in that way too. There is so much to like about this Barnsley side. And they come into this in incredibly good form. You compare that to Swansea and it's it's really difficult because you've got to give them respect. You know, I don't want to sit here and say that they don't deserve to be here because over the course of the season, they probably do. But that, you know, looking that if we start with the fans who have been telling us for, for quite a long time now that they are not particularly happy with I mean, I think it's fair to say the fans probably flagged the dip in performance levels before the results started to turn. And then unsurprisingly, that you know, that came next. If you look at the the data side of things, something that you and I like to do, the XG data has that has Swansea pegged as as very, very much a mid-table side. You know, they are seen as a mid-table team if you look at the last the XG ratio of the last four games, the last eight games, the last 12 games, the last 16 games. Um, and if you look at the last 24 games, so more than half the season, they are sixth or seventh from bottom for their XG ratio of 46%. Now, I'm not saying that XG is the be-all and end-all when it comes to this stuff at all. There, there are other factors at play, but you cannot say that isn't significant. You know, that suggests that on a consistent basis over the past half the season, Swan- Swansea's opposition are creating better chances than they are in games. Now, they have had periods where they've been better. You know, Andre Ayew and Jamal Lowe have both gone through very promising periods of the season. Connor Harrahan was a, a, a very shrewd addition in January whose immediate impact was was big and scored a couple of big goals. But they haven't improved, really. Like, over the course of the season, they haven't improved. And we don't know yet if is going to be fit for this game. I, I, I can't really work out why. Brentford should be one to two to qualify against the Bournemouth side who have shown a performance level of, you know, the, the disparity between the two teams to me is, isn't much in the course of their performances over the last 25 games. And if anything, I would say that Barnsley have been better than, than, um, than, than the level that the Brentford have shown over, over Bournemouth. I think that five to six is a massive price, a massive price. And that is, certainly where I'm looking um, here. It, it's one of those bets where, in my head, Swansea have to improve a lot. Um, in my head, Bar- or Barnsley have to regress a lot. If Swansea go and win this and win it well, I will not regret my bet of five to six. I'm so convinced that all the evidence in front of me makes that value that I won't, I won't matter. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that there's a nine there's a nine game gap between the end of the season and this first leg. A nine day gap. A nine day gap. This is a team who under Ishmael press so hard that we often see the manager making five substitutions after the hour because his players are so knackered. He came into the side and had to Im- implement this style of football mid-season. So it wasn't like he had a whole summer to do this. I think having this nine days off or this nine days on the training ground to work on this is a huge positive. I would be, I mean, I'm, I'm going to hand over to you now because my next selection is down to this in part. But I think having that having that break is going to be um, more than any other club possibly is going to be a massive benefit for, for Barnsley because they are going to be ready for this and their style of football needs them to be fit and full of energy and there's going to be no excuses not to be here. Mm. Well, you've said a lot there and I, I can't disagree with the majority of it, I must admit. I think with Swansea, I want to try and try and think a little deeper about how they might approach this. Because the first thing to say is, in the first half of the season, the reason they were second in the league is they had an incredible record for a few very key parts 
of football, which have massively dropped off. But in the good times, right, they were playing 3-5-2, had an unbelievably good defensive record to the point where we thought there was a chance they might break the all-time championship defensive record only for Watford to go and instead match it with 30 goals conceded <laughs> from 46 and Swansea dropped off. Now, there was a period where they very, very rarely conceded big chances. They did face a lot of shots and that's something probably to do with the way that they set up. They're not a team that puts a ton of pressure on the ball. They don't have particularly athletic mobile midfield players. They don't press teams particularly well in midfield nor are they too bothered about that and so perhaps maybe they were facing a lot of shots due to that but they were very very good at making sure that they weren't good shots that back line was performing very well and to top it off Freddie Woodman in goal was having an unbelievable first few months of the season now all of that has regressed to a certain extent they were not creating a ton of chances but they were taking them at a pretty good rate Andre Ayew is kind of like a one-man wrecking ball at championship level. At his best, he is one of the best attacking players in the division. He should be taken very, very seriously, I think, for this game. But what's fascinating for me with Swans heading into this playoff semi-final is that once the results started to turn, once they dropped off away from automatic promotion contention and the fans were getting more and more upset with the style of play, how boring it was, how little they impacted the game going forward in any way, Steve Cooper made a change uh, away from the 3-5-2 and he's played 4-3-3 for the last seven league games of the season. Now, for someone who admired the, 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 the Swansea side in the first half of the season and thought that it was the system that was getting the best out of that group of players, that for me was an issue. And it's an even bigger issue in, in terms of this specific matchup against Barnsley for me. I can understand trying something different when results turned, but A, they haven't looked particularly good to my eyes in the 4-3-3. Maybe marginally better, but who knows if that's anything significant. But against this Barnsley side, firstly, those three midfield players, generally Grimes, Howrahan, Fulton, potentially uh, sometimes it's Corey Smith in there instead of Howrahan, they're not going to get a huge amount of time on the ball. It's going to be very difficult for them to get the ball forward to a lone striker in IU all those wide players of low and whoever plays on the other side because of Barnsley's press. And I feel quite strongly that their best chance of hurting of hurting Barnsley and of, of their best chance of stopping Barnsley from hurting them is to go back to the 3-5-2 formation. Now, this is entirely my opinion. I am not a football manager. I have not done my coaching badges. But looking at the games that they played against each other, Barnsley have improved massively on this front over the last few months, but there was a period of time where Hellick and Anderson and Sol Bauer, as much as we love their emergence and their unit as a back line, committed a lot of big errors that led to goals. And both of the games against Swansea, that was the case. And Ayu and Lowe, I think, buzzing around, causing a nuisance, playing centrally, dovetailing up top together is their best chance of hurting Barnsley personally. Because Ayu, although he's not the biggest, is excellent in the air excellent at using his body to make sure that he wins duels and I think that could be a really obvious way of Swansea trying to hurt Barnsley here so if they go 4-3-3 that would be an issue for me personally and then at the back I mean Barnsley are their whole game plan is trying to slow the game down and turn it into a succession essentially of aerial duels in the opposition box and Swansea are going to struggle with that and I think one way of coping ever so slightly better would be to have three central defenders because Gwehi as much as I love him his aerial dual win percentage is pretty low he's not the biggest and if he's playing centre-back alongside a Bennett or a Cabango I can't quite work out which two would play if they're all fit in a 4-3-3 again I'm going to really struggle to imagine how they cope with the aerial bombardment that comes especially from set plays when Helic and Anderson trot up the field so that's my sort of tactical thoughts it's quite a strong feeling that Swansea might struggle in the guys that they've been in in the last six games. I would say Ayu, he's a big factor for me here. It's actually a part of my betting selection here too. He's had a hamstring injury, but he did play a bit in that last game of the season against Watford. He started that game, played about an hour. I think he'll be good to go, and he's excellent. He really, he is Swansea's big hope for me. It's basically Andre Ayu doing something spectacular, Connor Harahan scoring a free kick, or, or whipping in an amazing set piece that gets headed in by Cabango or Ayu. Other than that, 
I'm with you. I think Barnsley are going to have some real joy here. I think specifically, I don't want to boil the whole game down to aerial duels. It sounds like a weird thing to do. But if you watch Barnsley play, that is it. That is the key factor in their games. And I think they are a lot better in the air than Swans. And therefore, I think they're going to have a lot of joy here. So for me, looking at Swansea, you have to say in their current guys, as you've said, and it's not just the underlying numbers, but their actual form, the results that they've got. In the last three months, they are a mid-table side at best in the championship. Not great going forward. Okay at the back, but nowhere near as good as they were in the first half of the season. So when you think about Swansea, quite aside from Barnsley, you have to work out how likely it is that they'll get back to where they were at the start of the season, which is a well-structured defensive team that nicked goals and sat on leads brilliantly and gave away very, very few big chances. I think... The one thing that we really have given Cooper a lot of credit for over the last two seasons is in individual games, he has shown really good pragmatism to set his team up with the right game plan and do the business. So that's just the one thing in the back of my head is that maybe this is Cooper's chance to shine. I'm not sure the Swans fans are too positive about it, to be honest. And while I'm not sold on Barnsley as an open play threat, uh, they have improved a little bit in the last few weeks. They're immense defensively, Barnsley. Their style, as you've said, is so horrible to play against. And I just think Swansea, not a hugely athletic side. I think Barnsley will swarm all over them. I think they'll fancy this a lot. I'm following you in, certainly, on the Barnsley to qualify. Um, just hoping that IU doesn't put the willies up those centre-backs and, and cause <laughs> any defensive errors. Uh, I've also got two goalscorer picks here. I haven't got a huge opinion on how many goals there will be scored, but I have got an opinion on some good value goalscorers. One of them, as mentioned, Andre Ayew. You know, his quality speaks for himself. I have him down in my head as what I would consider a big game player. I think he relishes occasions like this. He was very good in that game against Brentford in the semi-final last season. And he's 13-2 to to score the first goal, which considering he'll be on penalties as well, I think it's a really, really good price. But also, any regular listener to the betting show won't be surprised that I'm going to back Mads Anderson to score any time in this game at 25-1. to As mentioned, a lot of Barnsley games are boiled down to uh, aerial bombardment, long throws, free kicks, corners. And although Helic is the one who has scored the majority of the goals from those situations, hence why he's 8-1 to one, rather than Anderson's 25-1, to one, it's Anderson, for the most part, who gets first contact on these. And I think there's a fair chance that Anderson, at one point, is going to, instead of flicking one down to Helic, just knob one straight in, mate. So that's what I'm on. Mads Anderson, 25-1, to one, anytime. Um, what else, what other angles have you got for me here? I've got a couple more. Um, I mentioned how I see this playing out style, you know, in terms of style. I think Barnsley will come out of the blocks incredibly fast after their break. And given it's their home game, the onus is on them to make sure that they go to Wales with a lead the, uh, on Saturday. And therefore, you know, if I think their value to qualify, if I think they're probably going to win this game, if I think the reason why they're going to do that is because they're going to be revitalised and that they are going to dominate the early exchanges I've got to have a bet on Barnsley to be ahead at half time at nine to five um, which I think is a good way of you know if I'm right it's a good way of kind of maximizing the the price you're getting rather than just backing Barnsley to win the game at 11 to 10 um, and yeah I, I it should make for good viewing I'd be I'd be really surprised if 10 minutes into the first leg I'm sitting there thinking well, you know, this isn't this isn't going the way I thought it would. Even if Mate, do, Steve do come Cooper, away. Steve Cooper, tactical pragmatic masterclass. That's but, what's going to get you. But that's fine if if they do decide to to, to drop in and and tell us, you know, have that pragmatism. And I'm happy with that. If they decide they're going to give as good as they've got, then I'm totally fine with that as well because they've because Barnsley will have a certain player playing up front called Daryl DK, who is my final um, angle that I'm going to try and and land a few quid with. He is a player that I absolutely love. He's on loan from Orlando City. He initially wasn't going to be able to play in these um, playoffs because of the terms of his loan. However, he is now eligible to play in them. He's attracting interest from some of the biggest sides in the country, and it's no surprise. He's a proper goal scorer. He's rapid. He has an unbelievable shot on him. Like He hits the ball so hard. I can't believe and, you haven't mentioned his thighs yet. Well, and he's got massive thighs. Um <laughs> He's someone who I think, and I'm normally a bit averse to um, to getting involved with Barnsley goal scorers because a bit like Pep Roulette with Manchester City, you never really know who's going to be coming on and who's going to be starting. But I'd be flabbergasted if Daryl DK doesn't start 
um, after this break, unless he's got an injury issue. And interestingly, in the last five games, uh, no, in the last seven games, sorry, in the last nine games that Daryl DK has started for Barnsley, he's played all 90 minutes, which is a surprise because there aren't many players who play 90 consistently for Barnsley, given the way that they use their substitutions. And as such, I'm going to back him in every single goal scorer market there is. I'm going to back him to score first at four to one. I'm going to back him to score last at four to one. I'm going to back him to score any time at two to one. I'm going to back him to score a brace at 11 to one. And I'm going to back him to score a hat trick at 80 to one. This is a guy who's playing um, in the second tier of English football. I think for the last time, if he's still there next season at Barnsley, and if they pay the 17 million odd that apparently they need to, to get him, it's going to be fireworks. He is too good and if Barnsley do exert a level of dominance over Swansea, then you know he scored he scored two braces already in his in his Barnsley career. I think that eleven to one could easily go, and if we land that, then we might have a nice fifteen minutes, hoping we can land the eighty to one too. So, um, yeah, DK goals, 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 goals. Uh, in terms of any extra picks from me, just a little double to make use of of Betfair's excellent multiples. I'm going to back Dan Juma first goal scorer and IU first goal scorer double at 52.5, so just over 50 to 1 there. Um, two of my favourite players in the league. And then in terms of overall... Well, no, I've, I've got my bet builder as well. Ah, oh, go on then. Build bet me. Bet builder, you won't be surprised to hear it, given I've gone through all of them. But yeah, DK, anytime goal scorer. Barnsley to be winning at half-time. Barnsley to be winning at full-time. 6.7, the price there. So just a bit bigger than 11 to 2. Amazing. Okay, and overall... I have a feeling we're kind of agreed here, George. And tell me if I'm wrong. I'm going to tell you what I think. Yeah. I think, putting betting and odds aside, that Brentford are the likely winners of the playoffs. I think that the final will be Brentford against Barnsley. But in betting terms, I think that Barnsley are potentially the best value of the four at 7-2, to two, given that I expect them to progress. And given the fact that in a one-off cup format, they've been excellent this season. Just think back to that performance against Chelsea. Brentford didn't enjoy playing them the last time they played each other. And as we know in the playoff final, anything can happen. So I feel like Barnsley might be the best value of the four. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. Um, I'd go as far as saying I both think Brentford are the likely winners and I think they're way too short. Um, Yeah, I think if you're looking at other playoff markets you know they're the favorites about two to one I could kind of see that being about the right price for Brentford I wouldn't be backing them at 17 to 10 with an away leg first up as well and again I think it's going to be cagey I think it's too short um I guess in that sense maybe Bournemouth have drifted to a backable price on the exchange at 4.2 um but yeah I personally think because I'm bullish that um Barnsley are going to be in the in the playoff final uh at seven to two, that has to be the selection. I mean, just no question. That's the value in my in my eyes out of the four. Okay, well, let's know what you guys think on Twitter at NTT Twenty Pod is where you can find us. I'd be fascinated to hear who you guys think are the likely playoff finalists out of these two ties, and who you think will be winning promotion to the Premier League uh, in just a few weeks' time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, George. Do you feel confident? In your selections, I'd love it if you just ran me through them one last time, game by game. I feel more confident, I think, in the Barnsley one. I'm sure I'm going to have loads of Swansea fans lording it over me when they when they get one over Valerian Ishmael, and all credit to them if they do. Uh, but yeah, in that game, I'm I'm I guess my nap is is Barnsley to qualify at five to six. Uh, I'm backing Barnsley to win at half time at nine to five. I'm backing DK to score first at four to one, last at four to one, any time at two to one, brace at eleven to one, and Hattie at eighty to one. And in the Brentford game, the first game we covered, KG one for me, nil nil at half time, seven or four Betfair Sportsbook, nil nil full time. I'm going to wait and back that no goal scorer on the exchange later on, and then Brentford draw no bet at four to five. And I've kind of done a couple of. Bet builders really useful to do that. So definitely do check out the bet builder um, function. Uh, and I think there'll be more markets coming up live in the next couple of days, card markets and stuff as well. So loads of good stuff for the bet builder there. And for me, well, in Brentford, Bournemouth, uh, in the first leg, Brentford to win either half at five to six with the sports book. 
uh, and draw half time Brentford full time at 11 to 2 also with the sports book and then in terms of Barnsley Swansea I'm following you in on Barnsley to qualify at 5 to 6 uh, and then just a couple of goal scorers uh, Andre Ayew 13 to 2 first goal scorer the big man for the big occasion maybe putting the cat amongst the pigeons if Swans can go one up and then Mads Anderson 25 to 1 any time the big Dane throws his head at absolutely everything and I think there are going to be plenty of opportunities for him to do so. Uh, and as mentioned, a very, very small bet on a Dan Juma and Andre Ayew first goal scorer double at 52.5. This has been our Championship Playoff Preview podcast sponsored by Betfair. If you've listened to this one and you've got an appetite for League One and League Two, well, we've got more of that. Those episodes will be going out on Friday and Saturday, so make sure you're subscribed and you can catch those fresh. Uh, League One and League Two, both of them seriously spicy playoff pictures as well. Um, we've been so delighted to have been sponsored by Betfair for this preview and all of our other playoff previews, both the three semi-final previews and the playoff final preview in a couple of weeks' time. Um, we're very, very grateful for the support of Betfair and we'd like to flag up their multiples offer, which is that if you bet £20 worth of multiples, you get a £5 free pet, free bet. Free pet? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. A dog, a dog courtesy of Betfair. No, you get a £5 free bet. Uh, multiples here include doubles and above uh, and bet builders as well. Each multiple must have at least one selection at minimum odds of 1.5. The free bet is valid on multiples as well and it's £20 staked cumulatively over the course of a day. The £5 free bet is valid for 72 hours and this excludes cashed out bets. Terms and conditions do apply. So make sure if you haven't got a Betfair account that you sign up for one today and make the most of that. Otherwise, it's just a big thanks for listening. Join us for League One and League Two on the same podcast feed. Enjoy the playoffs as much as we will. Uh, and do let us know at NTT20Pod on Twitter if you've got any thoughts.